Coincidentally, we are dealing with chapter 32, <clears throat> which deals with the subject of the last judgment. And of course, the last judgment um, <clears throat> follows what? The death of man. And so we looked at chapter 31 of the state of man after death and of the resurrection of the dead, which is really what Easter is all about. It's about um, what's going to be the state of man after death. Well, the answer is for Christians, the same as Jesus Christ. Resurrection to life, uh, a new perfect body, um, eternal happiness and joy and, and being in the presence of God forever. But uh, at the last judgment, of course, there's the disposition of people uh, into two groups, the wicked and the righteous, those who have eternal life and those who suffer eternal death. And so in paragraph one, we dealt with the certainty of the day of judgment. We looked at the fact that God has appointed a day wherein he will judge the world. We looked at the one sitting in judgment was Jesus Christ, the persons being judged, the apostate angels, and all who have lived upon the earth, the process of judgment, give an account of our conduct as a manifestation of our faith in Christ or lack thereof, and then, of course, the disposition each will receive is just due based on his works and what those works said about his faith in Christ or the lack thereof. And now we're dealing with paragraph two, the purpose of the day of judgment. Why have such a day? Notice paragraph two, the end of God's appointing this day is for. So the purpose of God appointing a day of judgment is for a reason. And so the purpose is described. It's for the manifestation of the glory of God's mercy and the manifestation of the glory of God's justice. Notice, the end of God's appointing a day is for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect, and of his justice in the eternal damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. So that's the purpose. It's to display the glory of God, both his justice and his mercy, and all of the other attributes that revolve around those two categories of people and God's dealings with them. So the day of judgment is going to be a day of great manifestation of the glory of God's character. Then, having described the purpose, now uh, the accomplishment of the purpose is set forth. And this is what we've been looking at more recently. It says, For then shall the righteous go into everlasting life and receive that fullness of joy and glory with everlasting reward in the presence of the Lord. But the wicked who know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ shall be cast into everlasting torments and punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So we've been talking about then the disposition of the righteous and our confession says three things with reference to them. First of all, that they will receive everlasting life. It says, then shall the righteous go into everlasting life. And of course, in order to have everlasting life, you have to be righteous. And we talked about the fact that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. Our sins are imputed to him. His righteousness is imputed to us. And when someone is perfectly righteous, there's no reason to die because the sole cause of death is sin. God said to Adam and Eve, In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death. 
the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Over and over again, whatever the um, proximate cause may be, whether it's cancer or an accident or whatever, the ultimate cause of death is always and without exception sin. That's the sole cause of death. And if there were no sin, there would be no death. Adam and Eve would have never died, nor any of their posterity, had there never been sin. And so, in order for life to be restored, sin had to be removed. It had to be dealt with. And that's why Jesus Christ came. Is he came to remove sin so that life could be given. And the way he did that is that he died on the cross, bore the full penalty of those sins, and thus the claims of God's law and justice against them were satisfied. And once sin is no longer imputed, death can no longer be experienced. And that's why we are restored back to life, to everlasting life, to eternal life. And the reason why it will be eternal is because sin will never again appear in our experience. God will so confirm us in righteousness so that we, like he, will not and cannot ever choose to sin. What does it say about, why does God have eternal life? God cannot sin. Okay, and so Adam and Eve uh, were able to sin. And as long as they didn't, they too had life, but as soon as they did, they fell. Well, they were mutable, they were capable of sin, they were able to sin, but in eternity we will not be able to sin. Uh, And the reason why is because we will be confirmed in our character. Adam and Eve's character was probationary, it was not fixed. All right, so then the second thing that happens to the righteous is that not only do they receive everlasting life, they will receive joy and glory and reward. And so the joy they have is the joy of the Lord. Um, It says in Psalm 16 and in verse 10 through 11, it says, In thy presence is fullness of joy, and at thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so people say, well, you know, where is the joy? And the answer is, it's in the presence of God. And where is pleasure? It's in the presence of God. And so people search for joy and pleasure in all sorts of sinful things. And while there may be some temporary happiness generated by that, the end of that is destruction and death. True joy and true pleasure are life-giving, not life-sapping. And so when you... Um, have joy in the Lord, you don't wind up with a hangover the next morning, right? Okay? Uh, You wake up the next morning and you're better off than you were uh, before. And that's the difference between the joy and the pleasure that God gives and the joy and the pleasure that the world gives. Is that the world's joy and pleasure always leaves you worse off, both for time and eternity. And God's pleasure always leaves you better off. Okay, so there's going to be joy and then glory... The glory is that God is going to to, um, put honor on those who served his son. Jesus said in John chapter 12, If any man serve me, him will my father honor. And so the glory that we enjoy is the glory of God's own son that God himself puts upon us because we served his son and were faithful to him. And then, of course, Connected with that is the issue of reward, and we talked about that last time. 
You know, we don't know exactly what those rewards consist of, but the Bible says over and over and over again that God is going to reward us for our service and obedience to Jesus Christ. And we talked about the fact that we don't deserve that reward, that what we are obligated to do is serve God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And after we've done that, we've done our obligation. There is no reward due to us for having done that. It's just like when you drive the speed limit, you know, the police officer doesn't pull you over and give you a $10 bill. You know, if you drive the speed limit, you just done what you were supposed to do. You don't deserve to get patted on the back for that. Okay? And so in the same way, when we obey God's law, we've done what we're supposed to do. We don't deserve to get patted on the back for it, but God does. Because he not only saves us by grace, he rewards us by grace as well for our obedience. And so we looked at a number of passages uh, that make it very clear that God rewards service to himself and his son. Now, that brings us today then to uh, our new material, which is the third element in the disposition of the righteous. We saw, first of all, they would receive everlasting life. Secondly, we saw they would receive joy, glory, and reward. And now thirdly, it says in, in paragraph two, that they will do so, notice, in the presence of the Lord. And so, the ultimate and final blessing that is placed upon the righteous is not just that they have everlasting life, as wonderful as that is. Not just that they have joy, glory, and reward, as wonderful as those things are. The ultimate blessing of heaven is that they enjoy the presence of the Lord. Now, think for a minute about those of you who are married, okay? Suppose you had all of the wealth of the world and all of the blessings that the world can supply, but you didn't have your wife or your husband. Or you could have your wife or your husband and have nothing else. Which would you pick? Well, obviously, you would pick to have the presence of someone you loved as opposed to all the possessions that you could possibly have. Because possessions can never satisfy the need of the soul for communion, for fellowship, and especially for love. There's no ultimate happiness in things. Ultimate happiness is in relationships and not just relationships with people but especially a relationship with God so what is the ultimate happiness of heaven it's not the gold streets you know it's not the river of life it's not um, you know the wonders of the new heavens and the new earth and the beauty that's there and the trees and the mountains and the animals and perfect weather and even the absence of sin the wonder of heaven is that God will be there and that we will be with Him. And it's in that relationship with Him, unfettered by sin, that we will have our perfect joy and happiness. Well, let's look at some Scripture passages. First of all, Revelation uh, chapter 21. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 21. Now, <clears throat> here... Uh, what we have is a description of heaven. And 
in this description of heaven and all of the wonders of it, notice what is central. Revelation 21, verse 1, John says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now here it is, verse 3. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle or the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. That is the central blessing of salvation. Now notice twice in this one verse, it says, He will dwell with them. God himself shall be with them. And it's like when your husband or your wife goes away on a business trip and then you're reunited. <laughs> the joy that is there is immense. And so it is with God. When we get to heaven, being able to be in His actual physical presence, personal, immediate proximity, to see Him face to face, and a fellowship with Him will be the fulfillment of all of the longings of our hearts for completeness, for satisfaction, for meaning, for purpose, for everything we ever desired. Turn over to chapter 22, verses 3 and 4. Well, we'll start out at verse 1, okay? Revelation 22, 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now here's our verses, verses 3 and 4. And there shall be no more curse. Remember the curse God put on in the Garden of Eden? But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him, and they shall see His face, and His name shall be in their foreheads. The chief pinnacle blessing of heaven is that we will see His face. I mean, you just think about our little church here, okay? We get together on Sunday, we enjoy each other's presence, and most of us aren't able to come back for Wednesday for one reason or another. And then we get together on Sunday, and it's like, wow, I'm really glad to see you. And I hope <laughs> you're really glad to see me. <laughs> and uh, it's like there's a joy, there's a smile that you light up. It's like, yes. And if we feel that way towards our fellow believers, how are we going to feel towards God when we see his face? You know, David says, I shall be satisfied when I awake with your likeness, with your image, with your face. And so David's satisfaction was only going to be when he finally saw the face of God. And we shall be able to see him face to face.
And the reason why is because we will not have any sin and we will have the perfect righteousness of Christ. And just as Jesus can behold his father face to face, we will be able to behold him as well. And you know what's fascinating to me is that the seraphim that around the throne with the six wings, with two they did fly, and with two they what? Cover their face. And with two, they cover their feet. We're not going to be that way. And I've thought to myself, huh, why is that? And uh, I don't know. Maybe it's because we have the righteousness of Christ and they don't. It's not to say they're sinful, but there's something lacking that we're going to have. We're going to be able to see his face. We're not going to be... And it's not that there won't be a, an awesome sense of reverence and, uh, and uh, recognition of the infinite distance between creature and creator. But the point is, is that God for us is our Father. He's a God to the angels, but He's a Father to us. And that term describes something of the closeness and the intimacy and the trust, and the personal relationship that we have on a level that the angels don't know anything about and never will know. Because Christ has brought us closer to the Father than the sinless angels are. And what does it say in Psalm 8 and verse 1? O Lord, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou considerest him? Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, but thou hast crowned him with glory and honor. And so, you know, we're, we're made lower than the angels in terms of, of, of our intrinsic capacities, abilities, but because of redemption, we're crowned with glory and honor above the angels, and we're going to sit in judgment on the angels, and we're going to be closer to God than the angels. And that's amazing to me. It's wonderful. All right, let's look at some other verses. John chapter 17. The Gospel of John chapter 17. Jesus here, the night before he's going to be crucified, is having his last supper with his disciples. And this big, long uh, speech he gives from chapter 14 to chapter 17 is called the Upper Room Discourse. In the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, chapter 17, we have recorded for us this prayer of our Lord Jesus. So he spends 14, 15, and 16 instructing his disciples, well, 13 too, that's when he washed their feet. And, um, and then at the end of this big, long section of instruction, he prays, okay? Chapter 17, verse 1, these words spoke Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father. And so he starts praying to the Father. Now he he says a lot of things to the Father, but I want to focus on what he says at the end of the prayer. Notice, if you will, John chapter 17 and verse 24. John 17, 24, Jesus says, Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am. Now notice, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before 
the foundation of the world. And so the purpose of Christ's redemption is that those he redeemed would be with him and that they would be able to behold him and behold his glory. And that's Christ's prayer. And God always grants the prayers of Christ. He always does. And so whatever Christ requests, Christ receives. Christ is requested that we would be with him and that we would behold him. And that's the blessing of the righteous. Notice Romans chapter 8. Book of Romans chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. We'll start out at verse 16, Romans 8, 16. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Axon, and Romans chapter 8, verse 16. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Now, there's a lot there, but I want you to notice the togetherness of Christ and his people. It says that we suffer, we're joint heirs with him. That is, there is a sense in which Christ has inherited all that the Father has. And we too have inherited all that the Father has. And we're going to look at that tonight in 1 Corinthians, where Paul says, all things are yours. Whether uh, Apollos, or Paul, or Cephas, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come, all are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. And so, God, who owns all things, has given all things to us as our inheritance, as his children. I mean, isn't that what fathers do, right? They um, will all their possessions to their children, if they own those people as their children. And this is what God does for us. He wills all to us and Christ. And we suffered with him on earth. We're going to be glorified together with him in heaven. There's a togetherness. My point is, there's a togetherness between us and Christ in heaven. Okay. And so when it says in our confession that we will enjoy the presence of the Lord, it's not going to be just standing there staring at this person, but there's going to be a joint airness, <laughs> a relationship, a sharing of all that the Father has. Is going to be given to his sons, though Christ and, and all of those that Christ has redeemed. And then finally, 1 Thessalonians 4.17. 1 Thessalonians. Right before the Timothys, right after Colossians. 1 Thessalonians 4. <clears throat> This passage is talking about the second coming of Christ. And uh, it says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 
And we'll start out verse 14. We've memorized this whole passage as a church recently. It says in verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we do, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain at the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or precede those who are asleep, those who have died in Christ. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now notice, here's our verse. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be, notice, with the Lord. That's the essence. It doesn't say, so shall we ever be in heaven, though we will be. It doesn't say, so shall we ever walk the streets of gold, though we shall. It doesn't say, so shall we ever be in our mansions, though we'll have them. The central blessing of heaven is, so shall we ever be with the Lord. It's that personal relationship with God that is the essence of the glory and the happiness of heaven. And so, this is the wonderful uh, redemption that Christ has provided, is the fact that we will enjoy the presence of the Lord forever. That's what we have to look forward to, is not a place. It's a person. Though there is a place, I'm not denying there's a place, but it isn't about the place. It's about the person that's there. It's just like your home without your wife or husband. It's empty. You know, you still got all the stuff, but you want the person. And that's what we'll have in heaven. Let us pray together. Father, thank you so much for the fact that you have not just given us your possessions. You have given us yourself. And Father, you have made it possible for us to have a personal relationship with you, even closer than that of the angels. A relationship of sons like your son has. Father, the wonder of that, the blessing of that, overwhelms our comprehension. Thank you, Father, for the fact that we shall see you face to face. And as the, as the Scripture says, we shall behold him. Father, we long for that day when we will see you face to face. We pray, Lord, that each one in this room would be prepared to see you face to face with joy and not with terror because they have repented of their sins and they have received and trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Father, thank you for Jesus. We do trust in him and look to our resurrected Christ to bring us safely home. In Jesus' name, amen.